podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger Podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bêche, meaning digger. Right, no, you're right. This is where we're going to fall out, Dan. Number five yeah. is where I'm we're going to fall it. out. Okay. Well, basically, in cricket, everything is auditable. Batsmen scores runs, and they go against the bowler's ledger. If there are buys, the buys nominally go against the wicketkeeper. Uh, if there are wides or no balls, they go against the bowler. Now, I have witnessed quite a lot of one-day cricket, T20 cricket, and I see a lot of pretty ropey negative bowling aimed down the leg side. So it's virtually impossible to hit. But if it glides off the pad and runs down to the boundary for four, the team gets four runs. The bowler does not at any point get disbenefited. I saw a game in the IPL this year where a bowler conceded 12 leg buys in two overs, finished with figures of something like none for nine off two, when actually it cost his side 21 runs. The statisticians will pour over that and say, oh, doesn't go for many runs, does he, isn't he? Top the top of the top of the T twenty. He's going to be a gun bowler. Nonsense. He's bowled a pile of trash. The batsman has quite brilliantly managed to get a leg on it and got some runs for his team. Quite brilliantly managed batsman, to get a leg the batsman, on it. The batsman gets. So what? He's played a shot. It's come off his leg, and it's and his team has benefited. The team has benefited. Now the batsman doesn't get the credit for getting his team those runs. He's missed and it. The bowler. I don't care. He's not missed it. He's got his body on it. You know. If, you, if you're brave enough to evade a bouncer and have it bounce off your head and go for a one-bounce four, you deserve the runs, my friend. And the bowler, the bowler has conceded runs. That's my point. The bowler has conceded runs. Now, why is that bowler getting away with this? The bowler's beaten the bat. The bowler's beaten the bat. I getting the runs? Because I would have an average of about 19 instead of about 12 if I had leg five. So I've played with my legs very successfully over many years. <laughs> and I consider it to be ludicrous that the one area of cricket that it just goes into the ether, never to be audited, never to be counted. It's just, oh, leg buys. Who conceded them? Don't know, can't see. I haven't bothered to make a note of that. Who, who was batting? What happened? Don't know, never bothered to check. This is nonsensical. Oh, Mr. Norcross. I, 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 I had such respect for you until then. Is uh, uh, I, I, th- I mean, the, the reason we're doing this podcast, it kind of emanates from the, uh, the 20 questions. One of those questions is, if you were in charge of world cricket for a day, what would you do with the game to make it better? And that's where we're taking this 10 from. And one of the people I, I talked to on the podcast was Jason Gillespie. And his, his argument was, we should actually ban leg buys because we shouldn't actually count them at all. Because the bowler has beaten the bat, he's bounced off the bloke's pads because he's not been able to get bat on ball. And then trotted down the other end and picked up a single, or it's gone down to fine leg for four, and he's picked up four runs for his team. Where it's actually a success for the bowler; he's beaten the bat, and he's uh, he, he gets penalised for it, or his team get penalised for it. Well, are you giving are you giving dot balls for leg buys now? So if somebody evades a bouncer and it bounces off them and goes down the boundary four, you're giving that as a dot ball. Well, he's not evaded it, has he? He's hit him on the head. Well, he's taking evasive action. If you're just going to encourage a whole load of bowlers to come firing the ball in at, at batsmen's pads from round the wicket if you get rid of leg buys. 
Well, if, you, if you're ja- crazy, if, if you're, crazy Jason, talk, if, if you're Jason Gillespie back in the day, and you're ra- you're racing in your, your your long manes flowing behind you, it's not quite as long these days. If this is listening, but he, he beats the bat outside the off stump, it hits him on the pad. They're appealing for LBW. It's really close to being out, but the batsmen trot down the other end. They pick up a leg by. How is that just and, and reasonable? That's entirely just and reasonable because the game is fluid. You might as well say the same about buys. You might as well say exactly the same about buys. You know, a, a dispenser with the wicketkeeper. It's not the bowler's fault, is it? He's beaten the bat. Batsman's not got anything on it. How, how come the side's getting getting buys? I mean, in, in cricket, you you get runs for getting an inside edge that flies down to fine leg. I mean, a bowler's basically beaten him there, but the batsman still gets the run. You have asked, don't get me wrong, I have a lot of time and respect for Dizzy. He's a tremendous human being. But I, I will go to my grave fighting him in hand-to-hand combat over this. <laughs> because he's basically taking a bowler's view. And, and frankly, the bowler has got three stumps to aim at and he's trying to get somebody out, bowled, LBW or caught, basically. But if you're firing a ball at someone's pad and it flies down the boundaries before, you just bowled a rubbish ball. You know, beating the bat, beating the schmack. It's, 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 it was a rubbish ball that the batsman couldn't get his, his bat on. Well, it's a negative rubbish ball, is my <laughs> point. You, you can bowl at people's pads, can't you? I mean, imagine if you're trying to save a game because you're, you're getting into the last hour, your opponents only need four and a half, five runs and over. You just constantly ping the ball at their, at their pads in a way that, you know, ordinarily they get something on it, they get through for a run, you stop doing it. If you're not going to give any of those runs, but the, the consequences, the ramifications, Badger, for, for what Gillespie is suggesting, just don't bear thinking about. They're shocking beyond belief. <laughs> All I'm saying is give the runs to the batsman. He's suggesting that a ball goes out into an open field off a pad and that's automatically a dot ball. Oh, dear me. No. I'll, t- I'll, I'll tell you what. Um, I am vehemently against you. I'm on. I'm very much on Dizzy's side of the uh, the fence on this one. I will throw it out to the listeners. Listeners, I'm going to put a poll on Twitter at cricket underscore budget. We'll put a poll on. We, you can decide if the badge is mad or if Norkers is mad or both. We'll find out. Well, there are three options, aren't they? Stay the same, give the runs to the batsman, or give dot balls every time. Let's move on. Let, let's move on very yeah. very quickly from that terrible <laughs> point. What a what a waste of time that was for all of us listening. <laughs> <laughs> Number six. You'll be amazed how many people will agree with me. <laughs> About three. <laughs> the Cricket Budget Podcast is brought to you in association with tvsportsblog.com. Give them a follow on Twitter at tvsportsblog. Excellent sporting content. It's well worth a look. And give them a follow on Twitter at tvsportsblog. Number six is mine. It's back to me. And it's no second chance for match fixers. I think the way the game is, there is no positive from match fixing. I think we can all agree on that. There is just no positive from it in any shape or form. Everybody before a tournament, before a match, is given the talk to by the match referees and the the authorities to say, these are the rules. You all know what they are. Um, you know that if you're approached, you're supposed to report it. You know if you're approached, you're supposed to say, no, I'm not going to get involved in that. There is no middle ground for me on this. There are no grey areas. You're either guilty or you're not guilty. And if you're found guilty of match fixing, you're out of the game for good. Everybody knows where they stand. And if the ICC, if the governing bodies around the globe agreed to a no second chance policy, then I think the game would be better because... Everybody knows if you if you're tempted even to a little degree to do something dodgy, you are risking your entire career, and I think that's the only way to tackle it. Okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, but I could see that this is an attractive 
proposition on your part. But I just want to raise the issue of being approached. If you were approached, but you failed to report the approach, but you don't act on the approach, yeah, is that a life ban as well? I think so. I, th- I think See, so. Because, because I, I would say you, you get into a little bit, there is a grey area here, because we, you were talking earlier, quite rightly, about the pressures that players are under, and, of course, their relative youth. And uh, some of the people involved in match fixing are, 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 are fairly undesirable characters. They may present as quite threatening characters as well. So blowing a whistle isn't something that comes naturally to everybody. You know, that, that's why there's kind of whistleblowers association, because it takes bravery, courage to report a rather threatening, menacing character coming up to you and approaching you to do something that's dodgy. Because it may come with added threats and menaces that you might believe. You might be 21, 22, and not really, you know, you might live quite a closeted, sheltered life. We've got to be sure that, we're, uh, that we can back up the players in the event of them reporting an approach. You know, they have to feel safe and comfortable that the system is going to look after them. I totally agree with that. But I think if you, if you create a culture where you are encouraged to do that and you are, as you say, protected and I was going to say rewarded, you can't reward somebody for doing it, but you, you're looking after them for, for doing it, then you create a culture where ultimately, what is the point of that menacing person approaching somebody in a hotel lobby? Because he's going to, he knows he's not going to get anything from it. At the moment, they know... People are corruptible. People can be tempted. And once they're on the hook, it's very hard to wriggle off that hook because, as you say, these people are quite uh, not the nicest people in the world at times, are they? And, and there's menaces and threats behind uh, behind what they do. And once they've got you on that hook, they can bribe you, they can corrupt you further because they've, they've got you involved. If everybody's encouraged to report it and encouraged to refuse, then ultimately that can only be a good thing. Well, I would say... If you've said that this is your policy, and if you have created a robust system for reporting and for dealing with miscreants, then yes, I think a life ban makes makes absolute sense. Um, I know at the I, moment, Don, there's there's the um, there is the grey area at the moment in the current system. If you if you are found guilty of something, and you then cooperate with the authorities, you can in the same way that on police dramas and on, on TV yeah. films, you can see the people... Plea co- bargain, isn't yeah, exactly. You yeah. cooperate with the authorities and therefore you can get a reduced sentence. And I, I think that's wrong as well. I mean, I know it leads to the good things that you do get information on these people, but ultimately, you've already committed the crime, haven't you? You've already done the bad thing. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I find it such a, a depressing area in cricket that I've tended to shy away from it because I'm, I'm not a very courageous thinker. I like to think about nice things <laughs> rather than bad things. <laughs> I take your point entirely. And I think if everybody knew what the punishment was, you know, the thing is we've had things like this happen before. You know, there, there was a punishment for going on the Rebel Tour to South Africa the second time was a life ban from playing for England. And that life ban was overturned the moment Apartheid was dismantled. Now, it didn't stop the people who went on that second tour going at a time when Apartheid was still there. So, you know, we'd have to stick to our guns if this is what we were going to do. We'd have to clearly communicate it from the outset. And if all those uh, things were done, and as I say, if the environment was created in which you could police it properly, then I I, I would be in favour of your proposal. But I'm yet to be convinced that we're quite in a position do that, yeah. I mean, I'd like it to be. Let's move on to number seven, Dan. Your your next one. Again, around the ICC, you'll be spotting a theme here, apart from the leg wide. 
Are, are you so, auditioning for a job as the uh, as the head of the ICC? By the way, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> I, I I I don't think I want to uh, go and live in Dubai. I, I, I like England. I'd just go to cricket if I was in Dubai. Uh, so uh, the, the problem that Test cricket has, or problems, are many and varied. But possibly the single most important one is, is that of competition. Whilst there are certain anomalies, you know, the New Zealand team at the moment is truly brilliant, and yet uh, it comes from a country with a board that has very little money. And yet somehow, you know, they are punching so far above their weight, it's ridiculous. But then you look at somewhere like South Africa, the West Indies, to a degree, Sri Lanka, you might argue. That these are countries where the boards aren't particularly well off and where players aren't getting paid particularly well to, to play the hardest form of the game. And so that's where you end up with lots of people going, getting cold packed contracts and leaving test cricket to Arnold Fear, among others, you know, Morning Walker, etc. Uh, and it's also why there's been this traditional push and pull in the West Indies over T20 franchises and Test cricket, which Jason Holder is magnificently pushing back the tide by being a terrific captain. But you can't always rely on having a character as strong and, and brilliant as Holder. So I think there needs to be a structural change, and it's that the ICC devotes an amount of its budget in just the same way, as I suggested, it should feed associate players I think they need to top up the test contracts of associations outside the big three. I don't think England, Australia and India need it. And I think we need to create competition in order to make it work. It's a similar principle to American sports where you have a draft. But in this case, you're, you're, you're not having a draft. You're just equalizing the situation slightly by providing the funds to support test cricket in countries that can't really do it because they can't generate the revenues that they need to from that. And I think it would massively benefit our game. It would give more teeth to the World Test Championship. Um, as I said right at the top of this programme, this is all about shoring up what I think is the maddest form of sport in the world and the one I love most, which is five-day five day test cricket. Totally agree with you. And West Indies is a great example who have just arrived on our shores in the UK. But yeah, there, there was a period, it's not quite so bad these days, because I think they're, they're far better run than they were, the West Indies. But there was a period where you could look at the T20 competitions around the world and you could pick a squad of West Indian players that would have beaten easily the team that they were putting out for internationals. And yep. that is something that we need to avoid. I love T20 cricket. I like the franchises. I think they, they've added a, an awful lot to the game but it shouldn't be at the destruction of Test Match Cricket. I totally agree. And I think well, that the, your, your proposal actually goes a long way towards actually rectifying that balance. And look, same's happening in South Africa. That there was, we looked at a team of South Africans that could have played uh, South Africa in the latest Test Series against England. And it was in no way worse than the one that England were playing. I, I don't think it's disgraceful. I think it's entirely understandable why English counties would seek to sign these players. And I think it's entirely understandable why these players would seek yeah. to earn their living. What we've got to do is incentivise them to stay within Test cricket. And if that means that the ICC provides £50,000 per person as a top-up to Test match contracts, then what's wrong with that? It's, it's, what the, it's what the ICC should be there for, I think. Right, that's number seven then, Dan. And I think we've, we've been in agreement on six of the seven so far. And I don't necessarily think this is going to change unless you have any objections to my number eight, which is to bring back the Champions League. I was... Uh, Fortunate enough to go out to South Africa with the Yorkshire and Hampshire sides in 2012. Chennai Super Kings were out there, Mumbai Indians were out there, Sydney Sixers. There were teams from all over the uh, the globe. And I, I found it a really good experience. I thought it was a terrific tournament. 
And I think, I know that there are 365 days in the year and they're already heavily oversubscribed. Perhaps it doesn't have to be an annual event. Maybe it could be biannually um, or something. But I think it gave um, a lot of people on the domestic circuit a carrot at the end of their respective tournament. Just for Yorkshire, for example, somebody like Steve Patterson, who is their current captain. He wasn't at the time, but he's a a very, very fine county player who was never going to play for England. But he had the opportunity in that tournament to bowl against the likes of Dhoni, um, Suresh Rayner. Some really fine players were at that tournament and it was a, a chance for the various T20 domestic leagues to come up against each other and find out potentially which, which one is the strongest. I, I've got a lot of time for the Champions League. They, they took it off the agenda because there were other things on the calendar and it obviously all, all needs financing. But I think if we're looking for the ICC to try and grow the game and try and look around the world to make it better, that's one way they could do that. Yes. I'm, see, I'm not sure. I, I, I love all the things that you said there. And I agree. I think it's brilliant for players like Patterson, Benny Howe, what have you. You know, really good county mm. players, really inventive, uh, excellent players who aren't going to get an England cap. But I, my, my problem with it, James, is simply one of structure because we have international club tournaments in football because the club buys that player and effectively owns him. But who's in round to here playing for? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, so those well, overseas players, the, the rule at the time, Dan. Franchises. Yeah, the rule at yeah. the time, Dan. I mean, Mitchell Stark um, was a good example of that. In, in that tournament in um, 2012, he ended up representing the Sydney Sixers. He played for Yorkshire and I think he'd also played for one of the, the IPL teams as well. But the rule is you play, first and foremost, you play for your domestic side, unless obviously your domestic side hasn't uh, qualified and then you can play for one of the overseas teams. And I don't think there's too much wrong with that. There wouldn't be, but you will get a clash, won't you? Because let's say, for example, the Trinbago Knight Riders, or if that's what they're called, have, I don't know off the top of my head, Dwayne Bravo. And they qualify, uh, they don't qualify, I should say, for the Champions League. But two of, his, two of his other teams do. One from the IPL, one from the Big Bash. Who gets first dibs? I don't know. Um, and that would be that would need to be looked at and, uh, and stuck in the rules, wouldn't it? And I'm, can't, I can't, off the top of my head, think of a fair resolution to that. But I think those, those uh, events would be few and far between. And I think the, okay. the, the benefit of, the, of actually having a Champions League, um, which is something where, I mean, I, I remember that Yorkshire side. They actually ended up taking out quite a young Yorkshire side that year because of, of various things, England call-ups and, and what have you. Um, I think Richard Pyre and Tim Bresnan were either injured or unavailable for some reason. Um, so it was the um, autumn before Jeverick made his debut in international cricket for England, and I'm sure it helped him. Um, and you think through okay. that Yorkshire side, there were some real youngsters in that side who qualified for the main event and put up a really good performance against some of the bigger guys. Gary Balance um, scored a load of runs. Adil Rashid took a load of wickets just before they first I genuinely, the Badger, I genuinely thought we were going to get through this podcast without you saying the words Gary and Balance. <laughs> uh, it's, the, it's the 150th edition. Gary Balance, Gary Balance, Gary Balance. There you go. <laughs> Good for you. Look, I'm with you. I, I like the idea. I think one of the loveliest things I saw on a cricket field was Steve Snell, wasn't it? For Somerset. Do really well in, I want to say like 2011 or 12. 2011, maybe, Champions League. And um, it was marvellous because he was, you know, he's a good English professional, but he was playing on the biggest stage and he produced a match winning innings. And that's what, that's what the beauty of sport is, isn't it? The fairy tales and the stories. So I'll, I'll let you have it if you can work it out in the busy schedule. I think, maybe instead of the Champions 
trophy. I don't know. I think the only thing, I mean, because T20 franchise tournaments are so big these days, they, you know, they're arguably bigger than some of the international series that are played. It's a good way of bringing those all together and actually just celebrating them and getting them, getting them together. I think the, the only thing I felt when I was out in South Africa, sending stuff back to the UK, not a lot of people were even aware it was going on back in the UK. I can remember speaking to James Whitaker, who was the chairman of the England Selectors at the time, and asked him the following, uh, following spring, did you see Gary Balance? Because Gary Balance scored some fantastic runs out in that, tor- that tournament. I said, oh, James, did you see Gary Balance out in the uh, <laughs> Champions League? He was, he was brilliant. And, he, and James Whitaker didn't, didn't know about it. And I think he didn't that, know about Gary Balance. I mean, he caught that, up. I convinced him in the end to, ca- to select him, but he, he did catch up. <laughs> I'll tell you what, put it on free-to-air television. Yeah, and, why, uh, why not? And, and you've, you've got a yes from me. Fed up of collecting your team's matchday subs? Worried about carrying cash post-COVID-19? Try slateapp.co.uk. Less contact than contactless. Slate, the smartest way to collect weekly match fees and more. Download the app, slateapp.co.uk. Not just for cricket, any clubs that collect subs. It just makes sense. Stick it on the slate. Slateapp.co.uk. We've got two more left. On to number nine. I haven't formed this properly as a, as a proposal. This is more an aspiration, uh, but I think it's absolutely vital. This is more, I'd say, connected to the UK, certainly, than uh, India and Pakistan, although there are aspects of it that apply all around the world. And it is increased participation amongst the groups in our society that don't get represented a great deal in cricket. In England, that has traditionally been women and girls, people who didn't go to public school, not to put too fine a point on it. So, I want to see a drive to get those participation programs working around the world. I mean, you know, getting women's cricket more focus in Pakistan and Sri Lanka, women and girls cricket, having outreach programs with the BAME community in England. Ebony Rainford Brent's doing fabulous work on that in Surrey. We need to beef up those participation programs because we do not want cricket in England to atrophy and become the pursuit of public school boys or indeed, for that matter, public school girls. Once you get wider participation, it grows the game so rapidly, uh, bringing women and girls' participation in at club level. I've seen the effect it can have on clubs that have a thriving girls' section and women's section. And it, it's magnificent. It transforms clubs from slightly tired uh, places, which basically repeat the same problems year after year, into vibrant local community uh, resources that people will use. And it's it's vital that we do this. This isn't about being woke. This isn't about wanting equality. This is about the practical necessities of growing the game of cricket. We need to be way more inclusive than we currently are. And I don't think it's because people are being deliberately uninclusive. I just think that it's a difficult topic. It's a difficult thing to get right. You know, very briefly, quite... Insanely, I captained a side in the Surrey Championship, Premier Division, third 11, about eight years ago. Our club had been running out of players, and a bunch of Pakistani Londoners who lived near me in Tooting had been playing nomadic cricket, and I'd seen them up in the common. And I said, Why don't you get involved in, the, in our club? And they did. And I would captain 10 people of Pakistani origin who are all as English as the next person. And they played with vim and vigour and enthusiasm, but they didn't want to captain it because they didn't feel really that the club belonged to them. And then when we would play games, and if we would do well, 
we'd frequently get a letter from the opposing captain complaining about the way my my players had appealed. You know, because there's a certain enthusiastic way in which people from that community could sometimes appeal, which was being looked at as not being cricket. And, you know, if a decision didn't go, didn't go for them, they'd express a certain degree of disappointment, but they got on with the game. They didn't cheat. They, they loved the game. They were great fun to play with. But I couldn't keep them in the system because they weren't really deriving anything like as much pleasure out of going and playing against teams week in, week out that didn't, didn't really make them feel very welcome. And I don't know, I don't want to put the label of racism on that. I just think that cricket needs to be conscious of being welcoming. It needs to be a place that people want to come and play. And if we can, if we can get that bit right and then work out how we can reach out into these different communities and bring them into the into more organised cricket structure, we'll do our game a great service. You mentioned that word racism. And after doing Michael Carberry's podcast last week, I was very happy in many respects. I think it was a worthwhile podcast. It got the message out there. It got people talking. And I think that's a, a very good end product, obviously off the back of everything else that's going on in the world. I don't think anybody can be complacent when it comes to anything to do with race and race relations and racism in, in any kind of aspects of life. You mentioned that, that word woke and the definition of woke, and this is one of the words that's been completely ruined in English language, because the definition is alert to injustice in society, especially racism. And if that's a definition, I don't mind being woke, because I think everybody should be that, and everybody should be thinking about how various communities, minority groups, whoever, what their chances are in life and what their opportunities are in life. And that is not a bad thing to have on your mind at times, I don't think. And I was disappointed by some people and their responses to the podcast um, which were along the lines of, sad what happened to Michael Carberry, but there is no racism in cricket. And I don't think you can make that statement because in a society like the UK, we've seen what's been going on in America and we've seen it in probably every single country in, in various ways around the world, racism is a problem. And it's not so much that people in the streets are shouting at people. It is that the institutions that are in society are built by white people for white people predominantly. And what you've just said there about Club cricket, that is prevalent in club cricket. And that isn't necessary that the people that are playing, you would class as being racist. It's just they're very used to living in a white society where the rules are for white people. Yeah, well, they create a, uh, a totally understandably, I have to say, they create an environment in their own image because that's where they that, that's where these institutions have grown and that, from. That's exactly it's right, Dan. It's, it, it's, not, it's, it, it's not malice. It's not intent to be racist. It's just that what I and yourself as well as kind of middle class, white, straight people, we find everything normal because it's kind of tailored for us really, isn't it? Well, I think there's a lot of truth in that, yeah. And uh, it would behove us if we, just, if we just thought of it selfishly, even if we didn't think about the, the moral rectitude or otherwise of doing this, just think selfishly, if you want your club to thrive, if you want your bar takings to go up, if you want your team to perform well on the pitch, we're going to look at the England cricket team to know that diversity is extremely helpful in achieving your ends. You know, England, England are the world champions. And a lot of the people who have played a very large part of that didn't necessarily grow up and learn their cricket in England. And similarly, if you're running a cricket club, your biggest problem always is participation. So yeah. make your club as welcoming as possible for all people, as, as simple as that. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of focus on women's cricket, quite rightly, and that has 
seen participation levels increase enormously in the last five years. So we know it's possible. We just need to do, we always need to do more, don't we? That's all. But since you asked for five things from me that I think we need to do, I think that is a really important one. We need to make sure that cricket doesn't dwindle, doesn't become a sport of the white elites, or indeed the black elites for that matter. You know, you might argue that in India, India was selecting teams from a, from a fairly wealthy group of people until, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So this isn't something that's peculiar to England. But I look at Australia, and we all like to make fun of Australia when we're in England, but genuinely one of the most moving things I've ever seen was watching boys and girls and people of all classes playing behind the Dremoyne Oval while I was commentating um, a one-day warm-up match during the last Ashes Tour. And to see the easy facility with which they played with each other and, you know, play reverse sweeps and there were girls hitting it miles and there wasn't a single boy who was horrified because a girl had just smashed it back over his head because cricket in Australia is a people's game, much as football is here. Now, I know that we're not going to supplant football as a people's game, but I want us to create an environment in which way more people play it and people aren't automatically turned off by it because they think, well, that's not for me because it's going to be... There's going to be a club secretary called, you know, Arthur Farquhar Smythe, wearing a suit on the boundary's edge, who will be tutting about the colour of your trainers. I, I want that to go. My, my final comment on that that point, and just as, as, again as a reaction to what comments I got from the Michael Carberry podcast, was that George DeBell put out a stat on on Twitter, and I think it was four black people that were in the English county system. Um, I'm not talking about the Asian um, population there, but the, the black people in the English county game, yep. certainly in single figures. And two of those have been imported from Barbados. So that isn't reflective of society in any shape or form. And I know there's an, loads and loads of different reasons for that, um, public school being one of them and, and, and various other things. But it's something that cricket has to look at and it's something that cricket has to try and address because... We can always make excuses, Badger. That's the thing. It's very easy to make excuses, but, you know, you look at how Australia manages it, you look at how Pakistan manages it, Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's not, it's not beyond the wit of man or woman, for that and, matter. And, and for a lot, of people, yeah, a lot of people that told me that cricket isn't racist or doesn't experience racism and they've never, they've been in cricket for 20 years and never seen any instance of racism and what have you. If that is the case, if that does turn out to be the case, I will be more than delighted and it would be a waste of maybe two or three weeks of somebody at the ECB's time. I was very pleased that the ECB have responded in the way they've done this, so they're going to look into it. And if they find nothing, they find nothing, and everything's hunky-dory. If they find something, then hopefully there'll be some positive change. It's a win-win on both sides for me. It is, yeah, absolutely. Let's get on to number 10, the final of our discussion points to date. And it's one that means a lot to me. I've grown up watching, obviously, English cricket, county cricket, 18 counties, 17, actually, for some parts of my life, but uh, Durham joined the, the, the front. And... Each one of those has played a major part in taking English cricket to where it is. Each of those has produced test players. Each of those has won trophies and had their moments in the sunshine. Some more than others, obviously, because that's the way that sport works. But I am a big advocate of retaining those 18 counties. I've heard voices kind of growing in volume, really, over the last few years, saying that we should have 12 counties, we should have 10 counties, maybe even eight to mirror the, the 100. I would hate to see any of the 18 first-class counties going under through COVID or going under through the fact that uh, they are seen to be disposable in the current game. I think they all play a part and I really want to see them preserved and and celebrated. And it grows the game geographically and that's one thing. 
Um, but I think one of the important factors with that is to market and see the importance of the red ball game. We all celebrate Ben Stokes at Headingley doing his heroics. We all love Test Match cricket and we all, um, I think you remember a, a glorious Test Match much longer than you probably remember anything else in cricket. And what leads to Test Matches is the county championship and the red ball game domestically and it's very easy for people. I mean, I saw the comment through COVID of, uh, well, it doesn't really matter if they play it behind closed doors because nobody goes anyway. Well, that's not really true, is it? Because, I mean, I've been at Scarborough on a sunny day and there's thousands in there, thousands and thousands. It's packed to the rafters. I know it's not always the same and I know county championship struggles. I know it doesn't necessarily make the money that makes it glamorous. Um, but I know that there's also a lot of people around the country that follow it through the BBC's excellent service, the audio service, or Creek Info's live scorecards, or whatever. It, just because people aren't there, it doesn't mean that people don't care about the county championship and red ball cricket. And I think all of those things kind of combine into one argument to make my point number 10, that 18 counties has to be looked at. It's something that's very special about English cricket, the fact that we've got 18 counties and they've all got their rich histories. Um, the Red Bull game is very special, as both me and Dan have agreed on throughout this podcast, and I know a number of listeners are very much advocates of the Red Bull game and test cricket. They're all very important, and I think um, when you look at the way that cricket's marketed, often the posters are of T20 Blast or England's White Ball Heroics, which is understandable at the moment because they're world champions, but you very, very rarely see a poster of a Red Bull game um, that isn't a test match, or you very rarely see... An advert on the on, hear an advert on the radio or the TV, which is promoting the county championship. And I think if you get what you wish for in marketing, if you only tell people to go to certain games, they will only go to certain games. If you tell people that the county championship is wonderful, exciting, you can have a wonderful day at county championship game, enjoy it in the sunshine, and see some great cricket. More people will go to it. I don't disagree with with pretty much anything there, uh, but I think there are challenges. Again, I think it's an aspiration that needs to be backed up by by actual work. And I think it'll go beyond marketing. I think a lot of the things we've been talking about will feed into that. So participation levels have to be higher to feed into the counties a good quality of cricket. I think that there are some counties who are falling behind a bit, which is quite concerning. I know from talking to older cricketers, say older cricketers, people are sort of my age and older, who were brought up playing on the county circuit when there were two overseas players. There wasn't an IPL. So, you know, the counties were probably the most uh, glamorous domestic tournaments yeah. going, really. Now, that isn't the case anymore because we've got year-round other tournaments, which reduces the availability of overseas players. But one of the things we've already discussed is getting more associate players in. That would help getting greater participation levels. So there's just the greater volume of players that need to be processed and the counties will play a very large part in that as well. I think while the standard isn't as high as it may have been 30 years ago when there were two overseas professionals knocking about and raising the standard of cricket across the country, I think we need to think about the structure of the county championship. I was really very excited at the prospects, which I don't think will happen now, but that this year we'd have three regional groups of six because I think that, again, makes it possible for any side to win. You know, it gives you a chance to dream. But two-divisional county cricket has undeniably, for my money, produced better quality cricket in the first division than, than they had before that, before we went to two divisions. So I do want to see that competition. The problem with the competition, as it's currently structured, is that I don't 
really believe that the quality is quite there in depth. That doesn't mean to say I want to remove counties, though. So I don't really think that you grow a game by reducing the number of teams that play it. If I believe in associate nations playing in the World Cup, why shouldn't I believe in Derbyshire and Leicestershire playing in the county championship? So, yeah, I, I agree with you, but more's got to be done to beef up that competition. And some of the things we've been talking about are exactly those things. I, th- I think if we, apart from your ridiculous leg by rule, I think if we it's adopted not, the, the only I think, solution. Yeah. <laughs> I think if we adopted the other nine, cricket would be better for it. And I know, you know, we we've had a joke along the way and all the rest of it. But I will I'll type these up on the bottom of the uh, the podcast so people can kind of digest them at their leisure. But I think if we uh, adopted uh, the majority of these, or even some of them, cricket would not be worse off for it. Well, it the ITC be... can do some of those almost immediately. Yeah, without without too much work. No, some of the others actually require talking to local community leaders, for example. I mean, this is where the work that Surrey and Ebony are doing. I know I'm, you'll think I'm biased because of Surrey, but actually, genuinely, the programmes that are being put in place there are great. Mm. And that charities do, the Lord's Taverners and their wickets programme, using cricket as a way of getting into deprived communities is terrific. And we've just got to be a bit more imaginative, but we've also got to be a lot less centralised. There is a, an understandable urge in the governing body I'm not criticising them for it, I hasten to add, but if you are the governing body, you tend to want to centralise. But many of the issues that we have been talking about require local action. So you've got to find effective ways of reaching out into the local community and finding the people who are going to help you out there. Could not agree more. And uh, there ends the uh, the 150th edition of the Cricket Badger podcast. Thank you, as I said at the start. For everybody that's, uh, wherever you've picked it up along those 150, if you picked it up towards the end of it, there's some issues that you can go back and, and listen to as well. But your listens and your ears and your comments and your subscribes and likes and all the rest of it that we encourage people to do on podcasts are hugely appreciated from the Cricket Badger. 150 in the bag. There are already some more on my laptop to come and there are plenty more to follow that as well. And Dan Norcross, you've been a major part of uh, the Cricket Badger podcast um, over the last couple of years. Your appearances are always very, very welcome and today's no different. Thank you, mate. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Badger. It's always a pleasure to come on. I always relish the call I get. Uh, I I, I just hope that I can still be selected for the 200. (laughs) He's changed his number about 10 times, listeners, but I've always caught up with him in the end. (laughs) Cheers, Dan. Thank you very much for joining me, mate. Podcast Network.